So, it's good to be here. And uh, I've got a message this morning that um, I'm going to be very straightforward this morning, actually. Hopefully we've got some pictures to help my story. But um, I guess if you're a parent here, you've always had to say at some point to your children, if you have children, eat all of it. I know I have. Um, less so now, but can parents kind of identify with that, eat all of it? Well, that was my kind of message to you this morning. This is from the outset, I want you to eat all of it. Um, Eden particularly, he'll get something like a muesli out of a bowl, and uh, he'll just pick out the bits he doesn't like. And so he, there'll be fruit or nuts, and he ends up with the stuff which I think is the worst bit out of muesli. And... Um, what, and the same with bolognese, he picks out the mushrooms and the, uh, that's all right, picks out the mushrooms and the onions. But uh, this morning, I'm going to preach basically the words, and I don't want you to pick out the bits that you don't like. I don't want you just to take out the bits which are a bit unpalatable, which are a bit harder to swallow. I want you to consume it all, because it is really good for you. I believe that God's word... The whole of it, the whole counsel of God is encapsulated in the Bible. And so, if Peter can preach the word and bring all of it without compromise, I want to do the same, because otherwise I'm not serving you well. And as leaders, we have to preach the whole word. So, uh, the next slide, I believe, we have... Uh, let me read something from 2 Timothy, chapter 3. It says... Oh, I can't do that now, can I? So all, uh, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening the truth to the truth and wander off into myths. So this morning, I don't want you to wander off into myths. I don't want you to just uh, listen to the teachers which uh, will suit your own desires and suit your kind of idea about life and godliness. So let's not have itching ears this morning. Let's, uh, as I said, eat all of it. Is that all right? You okay? Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, Phil Moore, some of you may know, uh, he's written many commentaries on the books of the Bible. He said to me once that um, we can be in danger when presenting the gospel to just give a bit of a, a salmon gospel. Let me explain this. So he gave a picture of when he went crabbing with his children and uh, the only bait he had was this salmon and he hooked it onto the hook and uh, the crabs would take a hold of it. And, uh, you know, they saw this nice pink salmon. Oh, that looks very tasty. 
but it was very flaky and it would just flake away and the crab it'd get it so high up the jetty and the crab would just fall away he said I found it's much better to fish with something more substantial and strong like squid you ever had squid it's like rubber sometimes <laughs> if you go to a bad restaurant it's like a elastic band isn't it but so and it's the same thing I want our gospel to be of substance I want it to be a true gospel not a pretty gospel that's palatable that we all like to listen to and that appeals to our kind of sensitivities not a salmon gospel that when we get a hold of it it's not the true gospel and we may take a hold and think this is good but then we just fall away I want to preach the full gospel of repentance by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is where we're going this morning. And the reason for this is my aim is that I preach the hard words in order that we don't just simply make fans. I could easily have a gospel which appeals to the masses. We have lots of fans that follow us as a church. I don't want to do that. I want to make followers. Thank you, Lord. I don't want just to appeal to the consumer, but I want to make and equip disciples. And I hope that's your heart too. We don't want just members. We want fully devoted followers of Christ. So, let's look at our passage in Acts 2, verse 36. In this passage, Peter doesn't dilute his message. He doesn't make it culturally appealing, a more tasty gospel for the listeners. Now, incidentally, when saying this, I do still believe that we need to be culturally relevant. And uh, we need to be relevant to the, the audience we're listening to and contextualise our gospel. But what I'm saying is we do not want to change the gospel or compromise the message in any way. So let's read from Acts 2, 36-41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with, sorry, and for everyone who he calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, um, there's a bit in this passage where it says, when they heard what Peter was preaching, that they were cut to the heart. 
Now, I don't know many people that had a heart operation, but I do know one. And his name's Keith Holder. And a few years back, he had an operation where he was cut straight through to the heart. And um, I guess that's quite inconvenient, isn't it? <laughs> it's invasive, it's painful, it's disruptive, it's humbling. But the truth is, it was so necessary for his longer term health. And uh, I believe the words we're going to speak about this morning may be invasive, may be inconvenient, may be painful, but I honestly believe they're essential to your longer term eternal health. And so I do want you to be cut to the heart this morning. And I'm not going to apologise if it's a little bit painful, because I think it's good for you and good for your eternal well-being. So, what were these words that cut them to the heart? The first scalpel cut that came to them was, He is the Lord and Christ. God made him the Lord and Christ. So in this statement, Peter is revealing the true identity of Jesus. The Jews were beginning to realise that they'd misunderstood things. And that this Jesus was in fact the Christ. And the Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah, the sent one. And they were expecting someone very different. They were expecting a a national ruler, a kind of an army general who was going to change things around for them. They suddenly saw that this man Jesus was both both the salvation for the people and the king, but not as they originally expected. So that's the first thing, that he's the Christ. Second thing, he's the Lord. They had to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. And in that time, um, in Jerusalem, everyone would have known the Lord as Caesar, actually. And uh, by saying that Jesus is the Lord, they were by implication saying that Caesar is not the Lord. And that was actually very dangerous. Because that could be punishable by death if they were going to say that they weren't going to live under tyrannical rule of this emperor and going to go under another another rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. So they couldn't give allegiance to anyone other at risk of being put to death. So they realised that they had to put, if Jesus was the Lord, they had to put him as their Lord and Master, His name is above all other earthly names. All other kings, all other presidents, all authority and power belongs to him. And he's the rightful one on the throne. And they came to realise that. So that's the first cut to the heart that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Lord and Christ. The second cut to the heart was just as painful. It says... 
in verse 36, this Jesus whom you crucified. Whom you crucified. Now obviously it wouldn't be possible for this number of maybe several thousand people to all have been the ones that actually lifted the cross and drove the nails through his flesh. But actually they were involved in the death of the Lord Jesus. And you may say how? Well, in Isaiah 53, actually there's a slide for this one Peter as well. Isaiah 53, at the end of that passage it says, we've all like sheep gone away. But at the last part it says, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it was the Lord's will that uh, all of mankind's sin would be laid on Jesus. In Peter it says, Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. So we were very much involved in his death on the cross. It was our sins that held him there. So this would have been a massive cut to the heart realisation that they'd been involved in the most horrific injustice of all time. They'd been involved in this barbaric crime and their sin and our sin played a part in driving the nails through his flesh. And do you realise yourself that's the same for you as well. That you have offended the heart and character of God. That your sin is like the one spitting in his face. Your sin is like the one who punched them, the holy of holies, in the face and spat in the face of God. That's what your sin is like to the one who is set apart, holy, perfect. That's how your sin is towards our God. A punch in the face of the author of life. Now, although it was our sin, but it was also God's will. It says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So this wasn't solely down to mankind. It was God's will also to put him through this. It was part of his eternal plan to reunite man to God. It says in Acts 2 verse 23, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was no accident, but it certainly was a tragedy. So in response to these really hard words to swallow for these listeners, what did they say? What was their response? They said in verse 37, What shall we do? <coughs> and here comes the response in verse 38. Repent and be baptised. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at that first two words when they asked, what should we do? 
And Peter's response, repent and be baptised. So let's look at the first command given to Jesus' followers, to repent. What does that mean? It's good just to kind of have a look at that word, repent. Repent actually means an afterthought, a second thought, a change of mind. So you were going on one course with one idea, one way of thinking, and then you had, actually, maybe that first thought was wrong. I've heard this new information. Maybe I need to have a second thought about this. It's a complete change of direction, a completely new path. In Acts 26, 20, it says they should repent and turn to God. So it's turning towards God. And the next bit says performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So it's a turning away from all other things, all other false gods, all other gods, all other, all other parodies of God, which make themselves look like God, but are actually discounterfeit gods. And I'm sure we can be aware of all those ones that... Uh, that we can build our lives on and work towards and actually they're just a counterfeit God. So, in that image we saw earlier, it says uh, about the sheep on that cliff top. We kind of thought we were going the right way and I guess those sheep thought, yeah, we've got this, some, we've got this sorted out, we know where we're going. But, they really don't, do they? We often think we know best. We follow the crowd, follow the popular opinion, the gods of this world. But what repentance is it? Is is it's a heartfelt, sincere, genuine sorry towards God. It's it's a moment where you've been cut to the heart, where. It's not just saying sorry because, you know, like when you say with your children, say sorry to your sister for hitting her for the third time. Sorry. It's not that. It's not a, just a going through the motions. It's not just doing something because you've been told, because I'm here saying, say sorry to God. It's not that at all. It is something you do with your words, but it's something you do with the whole of your will and demonstrated through your actions. It needs to be seen from your fruit. In the verses that I said earlier, let me find them again. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So we can actually all have a change of mind. We can change our mind on things, but actually nothing follows. No, we don't follow it up with any action any deliberate, considered action. And we can have the opposite. We can do the actions, like I just said, but not have any change of mind. We're just doing something because we think it's the right thing. But there's no conviction in our heart. True repentance and conversion demands both. So if you're asking yourself whether you've truly repented, this is a really good question. This is one of the first commands that Jesus brings to us. Welcome. So it's worth evaluating. 
a good question is, can people see the fruit and evidence and actions as a result of your repentance? Now, it's not just a one-time thing, is it, repentance? It's an ongoing experience. Now, I'm not suggesting that your salvation isn't secure. I believe that once you turn in faith to God, your salvation is secure. And he, the gifts that he gives, the gifts of salvation, there's verses in the Bible, it's unrevocable. That cannot be taken away. But what I'm talking about is, it's a matter of growing as a Christian. It's a matter of maturing. We expect more from our children, don't we? And our father expects more from us as we grow, as we mature. It's about a relationship, isn't it? It's about expecting to want to grow in friendship and walk and trust and obedience with our Heavenly Father. So, the second command, be baptised. Repent, second command, be baptised. Baptism marks the beginning of a relationship with Christ. It's not, you get to a certain level of spiritual maturity and then you're ready. I don't believe that. It's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's just a moment when we've decided to repent and turn towards God. That is the moment that we are ready to be baptised. It's just a really important public declaration of your faith and obedience and commitment to Christ. It's an outward demonstration of what's happening on the inside. It's the moment when you say publicly, I've been crucified with Christ. Now thankfully he doesn't... The symbolism that he asked of us wasn't to go to your local hill and hang on a tree semi-naked. I'm glad that he's changed things and he's given this way. But it still demands a bit of humiliation for us, doesn't it? But I'm glad we don't have to go to St. Alan's Hill and hang off a tree up there. I'm glad it's the way he's given us is baptism. But it's just as much identifying with his death. You're still saying it's just a moment when you're I was thinking this earlier. You're nailing your colours to the mast. And I read up what the definition of that is. And it says, to defiantly display one's opinions and beliefs. Also to show one's intention to hold on to these beliefs until the end. So it's nailing your colours to the mast. It's, if you like, nailing yourself to the cross. Nailing yourself to the cross, identifying with his death. Now the, the devil, he realises that it might be a little bit humiliating for people, and a little bit embarrassing. And he'll do whatever he will do in his power to water down, sorry the pun, water down the power and the effect of baptism. I really want to just remind you, it's much more than just an embarrassing joke. It's much more than an unnecessary religious act, which is outdated. 
the importance of baptism for the early church was huge. It was a sign that they had partnering with the Holy Spirit. It was so much more than a symbol. It was a, it was a public death, identifying with Jesus' burial and resurrection. Please don't come to the place where you're risking disobey this second commandment. Repent and be baptised. I want us all to identify with him and say, actually, I am going to get baptised and declare that he's my new Lord. He's my new master. I'm going to push through any issues of pride, shyness or fear. Because I want to begin this relationship with the Lord Jesus as I mean to go on. In hearing his commands and then willingly and joyfully obeying his commands. Start as you mean to go on. For the Jews, numbering in this 3,000 people that Peter was preaching to, it was a very serious thing. It was an important act that would literally cut them off from their Jewish friends and family. They were declaring their repentance and faith in Christ. They were clearly showing that it wasn't enough to just be Jewish. Their salvation wasn't on their ethnicity or their religiosity. It was on the firm foundation of Jesus being their Lord and Christ and repenting from their their old way. I guess it would have been easy for many of them. When you're amongst 3,000, you could sort of say, yeah, I'm identifying with this crowd. And, uh, but when the rubber hits the road, you could just sort of, someone asks you, are you really? No, I'm not really, I'm just, just observing. But to actually step forward and go into the river, go under the water and come back up, they were dying to themselves. They were really putting their reputation on the line. And I think that's a really important thing for us to remember. In um, Acts 8, 26, we have a lovely account of the Ethiopian eunuch. He's uh, reading from the prophet Isaiah in his chariot, but he doesn't really understand it. And then Philip runs alongside the chariot, jumps in the chariot, and then he starts explaining the good news from the scripture that he's reading from. And he reveals this the gospel to him. And then we read in verse 36. I think I've got a slide for this actually. Thanks Peter. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see here, there's water. What prevents me from being baptised? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the river, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptised him. And and when they came up out of the water, I've left that in because I think it's really important for us to realise that they went into the river and they came up out of the river. This was just much more than a sprinkling. This was a full immersion. If you look at the original word of baptism, baptizo, it was used for similar things like um, when you would uh, dye some cloth and you'd submerge all submerge all the, uh, the the cloth into the dye and then it would come up completely different or when a ship sank it was the same word used for that that it went completely under the water so this is the question that the eunuch asked 
Philip, what prevents me from being baptised? And I'm going to ask you that this morning. I want you to ask yourself that. What prevents me from being baptised? I'll leave that hanging. I want you to realise, I want us all to realise together, that um, if you've set out on your road of repentance, if you've made some steps towards faith in Jesus, then there's absolutely no reason why you can't get baptised today. I haven't got enough water to baptise you today. But um, we have got, Keith tried, we have got a baptismal service on the 3rd of June, where we already have someone get baptised. Why don't you consider if you want to get baptised as well? So this first fruit of their repentance is marked through baptism. Now, I guess some people may be thinking, well, we don't want to baptise people too quickly. Personally, from my point of view, I think we've gone so far down the other way of delaying people's baptism for whatever reason in our human wisdom. I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to be okay. I think on the day of Pentecost, there was 3,000 people that got baptised. Maybe amongst those few, some got baptised a little bit too early and they had to consider what they'd done. And it was just an act an action, and they didn't have to, I don't know. But what I do know is I don't want to delay people, because I believe baptism marks a significant moment in a Christian's walk. It marks that, that and signifies that, what's going on in the inside. And... I've got actually some pictures. So I was trying to find some pictures of uh, baptism. So some of you may not have seen a baptism. I was trying to find some pictures of my daughter. But I actually found some pictures of Holly. hope you don't mind, Gary. <laughs> so this was a few years ago. And we were baptising her in a car park. See, now at least we do it inside. We're not going to be outside. Although if you do want to get baptised in the river... We give that option if you want to. But I guess the thing for me is it has to be in a public place. That's part of the deal, that you're publicly declaring your faith in the Lord Jesus. So I don't really want to come round your house and do it in your bath. That's just not... It's weird, isn't it, to be honest. I think, you know, we want to do it. Because I personally love baptismal services. They're probably my favourite thing. Hearing how people, people's journey of how you've, they've been drawn into this relationship with Jesus. How they've understood what it is to repent and turn and follow after Christ. So, uh, I was thinking about this this morning. You know, today's Pentecost Sunday. And I guess if we ask people, oh, what, what's Pentecost all about? And many people would say, oh, it's about when the Holy Spirit came and permanently dwelt within man and it is and that is wonderful but actually 
some other stuff happened too. A whole group of people, numbered in their thousands, repented, turned away from their old life. And then by signifying it, they baptized. They got baptized together. So, yes, it's the day of Pentecost. And I welcome the Holy Spirit. But I welcome for us to be a people who repent and are baptized. The other thing to notice here, that what happens after this command to repent and be baptized. So in Acts 2.38, let's look at that again. What follows? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then what follows? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then later on in Acts 3 it says what directly happens after repentance. Repent therefore that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now I believe in God's grace and mercy and he loves to just bless his children. But I do believe that something powerful happens when we repent and turn. And people can experience the love of God and the grace of God and the Holy Spirit before coming to faith. But actually when you say I'm turning towards you, there's a new release of the presence of God in your life like you've never known. The Holy Spirit comes in abundance. Don't we all want times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Now this series that we're doing in Acts is all about partnering with the presence of the Holy Spirit. So you may be wondering why I'm talking about repentance and baptism. And the answer I think is found in John 15:13 where it says this. Greater love has no one than this. And that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Curious. But in God's word again. Now I don't believe if you have repented and turned towards God that your salvation is at any way at risk. Your salvation is secure. And as I said, the gifts that he gives are unrevocable. He does not take them back. But there is something linked. There's something clearly connected and contingent with our obedience to Christ. It says here clearly, you are my friends if you do what I command you. We're all his children adopted into his family. But I know in my family, and I guess in some of yours, that if my children just said to me, Dad, I'm just going to go out and do loads of sinning. I'm just going to really have a great time. 
the worst things. I'm just going to go and do them. Because I know that you're my father and that you love me and that whatever I do, you're going to forgive me. Personally for me, that's not what I kind of fall into as a father. I feel I've been a little bit shortchanged. pretty unfulfilling actually if they just trust in my goodness to always forgive them to always love them despite what they do I would like just a level of obedience from my children why? because I think there's something powerful that happens because I want to build a friendship with my children I want to build a relationship and it's the same with our Heavenly Father. Think of, uh, I mean, I have much, many dreams for my, my children. But think of the dreams and hopes and visions that your Heavenly Father has for each of you. It's far beyond what you could ever dream. And so He calls us to obedience. So, uh, Maybe there's some bits of this muesli message that you want to pick out and put on the side of the plate. I'd encourage you, eat all of it this morning. Why don't we just bow our heads for a moment, actually? I'll